This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to the first of our intradepartmental sessions celebrating the quarter millennium of English literature study in this university. We've had a couple of other sessions and a couple of celebrations last term, but this is the first time when we're meeting, as it were, almost within the family to celebrate our longevity. Very nice to see so many people here to join in those celebrations, since there are guests invited and a couple looking around the room from outside the department. I'll introduce tonight's speakers a little bit more formally than is necessary. I could just say Professor Susan Manning, Dr. Bob Irvin are known to all of us, just in case they aren't a swift reminder that Professor Susan Manning is known as an expert in the period we're looking at, the Scottish Enlightenment in the late 18th century, but also someone who's looked at its connections with the wider world, particularly to the West and the United States, books like Fragments of Union, as well as more recently editing a collection about character and self in the Scottish Enlightenment. Moving on to Bob, just a couple of his books. One, Enlightenment to Romance, is exactly looking at the kind of period we're looking at tonight. Another one in Jane Austen takes us on into a new century, which we might reach if time allows, between now and six o'clock. I would normally at this point say, as chairman, I will simply take the opportunity to disappear without more ado. I'm actually not going to do that, because I believe that in looking at 1762, I have one attribute which can be of enormous use to us. What is that attribute? Ignorance. I don't know a great deal about 1762, and as I believe, looking around the room, not all of you are highly qualified antiquarians or enlightenmentists, if that's the word. You may share some of my ignorance and actually want, in this first session, a fairly straightforward talk into what was happening in 1762, gradually advancing in sophistication and insight, calling on the full range of skills for the two speakers present. We have slightly run out of handouts, so what I'll do is simply put anything referred to on the visualizer in due course, starting with the 1762 timeline. The question I wanted to begin with for Susan um, is a fairly simple one, and you might guess what it is, and it perhaps is there on the timeline. But the question was simply, Susan, what happened in 1762? Why was it necessary or congenial to create a professorship of rhetoric and belles lettres, specifically in the city of Edinburgh? What else was going on historically at the time? 17 years since the, I almost said 1945, I mean <laughs> 1745 rebellion, don't I? I told you I was ignorant. What was this great city doing that made rhetoric and belles lettres so welcome at that moment? What should we be looking for in the foundation of that 250-year-old chair? Thank you, Randall. Small order. Um, I, first of all, I refer you to my handout. I'm very proud of this, and I have indeed copyrighted it because it took me hours to put together, and, and it's all my own work. Um, the, uh, what I want to do, actually, as Randall said, is, is to start off by just going through a kind of chronology, uh, I'm not going to talk through all of those things, but to try to identify some of the factors that I think um, uh, we need to bear in mind when we think about what happened in 1762. 
And I want to cluster those under three broad headings. Um, the first of all, the, the sort of what we might call the historical background, the historical circumstances. Then thinking about language and literature uh, as categories. And then thinking about the civic context of mm -hmm. Edinburgh uh, as a university embedded in its city throughout the, uh, well, all the centuries since its founding, but you know, absolutely, most definitely in, in the 18th century, I think. So let's, um, we won't start with the death of, of James, we'll, let's start with the Act of Union between England and Scotland in 1707. Um, what I want to say about that, I think probably most people will know about that and will know um, why it's significant for Scotland. It, it unites the, um, the parliaments of Scotland uh, and England and it means that uh, largely power, political power gravitates southward. Um, with uh, the exception that there is a, a manager, somebody in Scotland, uh, who turns out to have a tremendous local power, and I'll come back to that later. One of the other things I want to note about 1707 is it's almost uh, co-instantaneous with uh, the beginning of uh, a quite radical uh, set of reforms to the curriculum in the University of Edinburgh, which in the late uh, 17th century had become rather stagnant in its uh, method of teaching. It had a rather old-fashioned regenting method where one regent would take through a, a class through all its uh, sequences of, um, uh, of subject matters. Um, and pr Principal Carstairs initiated a uh, what we might think of as, as a professorial system where uh, people were lectured to uh, sequentially by people by um, uh, professors who were appointed in their subjects and were um, uh, presumed to be experts in that. So right at the beginning we've got a coming together in, in chronological terms between a major political upheaval and a major local um, upheaval in, in the, uh, the university context. Now, together those things um, help to kick-start, I think, uh, not only economic growth in the, in the uh, politi larger political context, um, but a culture of improvement, a culture of change, uh, uh, a, a huge shift after a rather low point, particularly in the 1720s when the disaster to many Scots of the uh, Darien scheme, the investment in the Darien scheme was compounded um, by the South Sea bubble, uh, another uh, disastrous financial investment. So those Scots nobility who hadn't lost their money in the Darien scheme um, <coughs> universally lost it in the South Sea bubble. Uh, so the 1720s is both a low point and a turning point, I suppose, in terms of uh, the uh, political and cultural and economic history of Scotland. And it means that we need to think about a culture of improvement and change really gathering force after, after the, um, the 17, in, during the 1730s, largely, I would say. Um, now, that's the era, too, in which Hugh Blair, who's born in 1718, of a merchant father who lost his mother, mother sorry, lost his mother, lost his money in the, um, in the South Sea bubble, um, and uh, fell on something of hard times, but uh, Blair, nevertheless, uh, born in Edinburgh, came, studied in Edinburgh in the 1730s, and studied with uh, John Stevenson, who's an important 
precursor, I suppose that we would say, of, of the chair um, that Blair would subsequently come to um, uh, to assume. Um, Stevenson uh, was there. Are two things I want to say about him. One is that he's he's a professor of logic and metaphysics, um, and the discussion of rhetoric and literature as we would now think of it or, or belle lettres um, comes under that aegis uh, as far as um, uh, the lecturing such lecturing as was available in the university at that time so that's where uh, Hugh Blair learns um, about uh, rhetoric and belle lettres for the first time from John Stevenson and um, Stevenson um, pays attention to two things one is effective argument and style and how to achieve it, and that's rhetoric, if you like. And the other is um, an analysis of examples of this drawn from, and this is what's interesting, Dryden, Addison and Pope, as well as Homer, Longinus and Aristotle. So there's already a sense that there's something to be had in, from a vernacular literature um, you know, uh, and an English tradition uh, by way of uh, pedagogical uh, um, uh, instruction for uh, would-be uh, clergymen, as is Blair's um, destiny. So, um, alongside that, both within and outside the university, there's there's a, a project, a larger project going on, the Science of Man in Scotland, which is a study across what we would now see as all the disciplinary areas, all the areas of um, activity in. Um, uh, in intellectual um, domains um, to try to understand what human beings are in all their in all their facets so philosophically um, theologically physiologically medically um, historiographically and societally it's the beginning of what we see now as, as I think a, a separation out of the modern disciplines and one of the, the huge contributions to enlightenment made in Scotland really is, is I, I would see, the, the evolution of modern disciplinarity. And again, I would want to see the, uh, the Scottish um, uh, priority in establishing a, a chair in literary studies uh, specifically as part of that disciplinary ferment and that, that evolution of, of uh, the subject structures as, as we now have it. One of the other things that the um, science of man does is to establish a revolutionary uh, historiographical method which also helps to explain societal development and cultural national difference. And it's essentially a stage theory that says that all societies pass through the same sequence of stages from uh, savagery uh, towards civil society. And the, usually there are four stages in that evolution. And it helps to explain the progress of history towards social uh, to, towards civil society but it also helps to explain why different societies are different structurally uh, and sociologically at, at any one um, historical moment and that becomes very important in the evolution once it gets applied to uh, thinking about national literary tradition that um, that's going to be um, uh, the same structure that, uh, that Blair will develop so just moving on um, quickly to uh, what another consequence, another area of consequence of, of the Union. One is that um, Scots language becomes uh, an issue of great interest and great problematic, really. Um, it's something that has to be identified as, as different, separated off, 
from in some respects, um, and an evolving, um, um, normalizing of the English language. Um, so that on the one hand you get uh, a con an increasing concern for correctness, communicability, civility, uh, people in England being able to understand what is said um, by Scots and for Scots not to feel themselves marked as provincial by their English um, uh, compeers. Uh, so there's, a, there's a, an increasing anxiety about speaking English, um, which is particularly acute, I think, um, in Edinburgh, where the where the commerce with London is is uh, closer than at that stage in in other parts uh, of Scotland, um, and a, a marker of that is uh, in the early 1760s, Thomas Sheridan, uh, famous Irishman, coming and lecturing to absolutely packed houses in Edinburgh on how to pronounce English. Um, and it, I mean, this was a, a huge while. Nobody ever asked whether Sheridan knew how to pronounce English, but um, his book, uh, based on that, became terrifically uh, popular. So you get... Um, a, 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 and the Edinburgh great and good are, are sort of involved in that uh, from the beginning and, and very enthusiastic attenders. And at the same time, you get an interest in what is Scottish about Scotland, and Scottish literature begins to be something that people actually start to um, to collect, par partly because there's a fear that it may be passing into oblivion, and partly because uh, there's a sense that it may have a value in its own right, separate from this uh, gathering sense of English literary tradition that we're getting from, say, Joseph Wharton's essay in Genius and Writing of Pope, or Thomas Wharton, his brother's um, observations on Spencer's Fairy Queen. And uh, around about this time too, we're talking now sort of 1750s, both Hume, uh, David Hume, who's the leading philosophical light of the Scottish Enlightenment, uh, and south of the border um, or uh, west in Ireland, depending on wh when you're talking about um, Edmund Burke, are writing about taste. And um, it's, it's the beginning of what we would now think of as the, the modern subject of aesthetics, uh, where it's taking its, 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 uh, um, its shape in a, in a modern form. And the question of whether taste can be taught, whether it's innate, whether it can be improved, um, how to identify it, uh, what marks good taste, and, and so on, become uh, matters of discussion um, and the question of their relation to ethics, to morality, is, is important too. 1757, uh, yes, the same year as the essay on the standard of taste, John Hume, uh, who's a cousin of David Hume's, produces a play called Douglas, which is meant to, uh, which caters for a desire in Scotland for uh, a national uh, um, epic drama uh, with a historical slant that is um, felt to balance uh, some of the work that had been done um, post-Shakespeare. Um, and uh, Hugh Blair takes the part in the play reading of, of that play in Edinburgh of The Maid and uh, this is actually a highly controversial event because Hugh Blair was a, a churchman, he was an ordained clergyman and the church uh, the General Assembly was dead set against the production of drama at the time and various other people involved in that play reading are officially censured um, or come under censure by the assembly and Blair by virtue of his position um, manages to escape so at that point um, Hugh Blair has something of a standing in uh, Scotland he had recently been translated to the uh, 
uh, ministership of uh, the High Coke of St. Giles. He has quite a long, uh, a, a big following. Uh, his, his sermons are very well known. Um, he begins to lecture on rhetoric and belles lettres based on the uh, lectures that had been given by Adam Smith in the city in um, 1748-51 before Smith went to Glasgow. And then he um, starts to... So, so Blair takes on those lectures, uh, does them in the city. Uh, they're very well attended. The university thinks a good thing here and starts to pay... Uh, well, starts to allow him to give them within the city walls, the university walls, but without a stipend. And just at that point, uh, George III ascends the throne and his uh, principal minister is uh, the Earl of Butte, um, who is very closely connected to, not only to John Hume, who, who was his secretary, but to that whole Enlightenment uh, group in Edinburgh. So the good times roll and they all get preferment. And uh, what um, Hugh Blair gets is uh, the establishment of a Regis Chair of Rhetoric and Belles in the University of Edinburgh, which um, allows uh, him to get a stipend of £70 as well as the class fees that um, he had previously been uh, raking in from his students. So that's essentially the uh, the prehistory of the chair, um, and uh, there's, of course, lots more we could say in discussion, but I'll, I'll stop with 1762 on that one. Okay, well, it saves me turning over your hand. You don't have to do it. Yes, we can, that's right, we can. Start. Yeah. Questions, do keep them for, sit on them for the minute. I just wanted to ask one, and you can tell where it comes from. It comes from my lazy modernism, but <laughs> I was going to say, Susan, that scientists generally tell us that most of the 13.4 billion year history of the universe was defined in the first three seconds after the Big Bang. If we were going to look back at 1762, which is, of course, the greatest event in the history of English literature's formation as a subject, <laughs> how would you configure that relation to the present moment on whatever day it is in February um, 2012? Are there connections that you would want to make between the circumstances you've outlined, the instantiation of the chair, and where we're sitting at this moment in February 2012, isn't it? Well, this is the question I'm glad that you told me you were going to ask me beforehand because I, if you just asked me it now, I would, I would probably have um, gabbled. I'll, I'll gabble in a slightly more structured way. I, I can think of six ways in which we have that. Um, that I, I, will, I will go through them very quickly, and it would be interesting to me to talk with people more about any of them. Um, some of them, I think, are, are tendentious, so I hope, I hope you, you are tendented. Um, the first is, I think it creates a subject. It creates uh, something that needs to be taught uh, and gives this subject, English literature or rhetoric and belles lettres, as it's initially known, cultural authority and some kind of status, institutional status. Um, literature becomes English literature. Uh, literature before that, in, in 17, the 1750s, literature just means any writing. Um, after Blair's lectures really are, um, are, are institutionalised, um, we begin to get the idea that literature is, is about a specific, not only a specific kind of writing, but a specific way of reading writing. Right? So I think, I think the first thing is that we get a, 
a subject, not just a generic name. It instantiates this subject reading as a complex activity. It thinks uh, it's the beginning of hermeneutics, if you like, um, and in that sense it's coterminous with the beginning of uh, modern biblical exegesis um, and criticism. Um, Blair calls it an art wholly founded on experience. It depends on actually reading. The second thing that strikes me as a possible um, point of continuity is that it, from the beginning it's, it's what we might think of as an interdisciplinary discipline. It comprehends history, philosophy in its ethical and epistemological forms, languages, religious studies and so on. It's a discipline which is about uh, reading, thinking, judging, discriminating um, and uh, as such it it's, uh, has wonderful transferable skills as we know and, and we, could, we could proselytize further on that. But, it, but that's all there in Blair and, and Blair's subject matter I think. The third thing I'd say is that it establishes a canon. It says not only that there is a thing called English literature, but it says what it is, what's included and what isn't. And the most important thing about that is that it's a canon not simply based on the classics. So we are seeing a shift um, from that kind of neo-Augustan um, sense that everything that could ever be said had been said properly um, and best in the classical period to the idea that contemporary literature... Um, is an essential part of the subject and that's something that people often forget about Blair. Blair is right at the cutting edge of literature. I mean he's writing a dissertation on the authenticity of the poems of Ossian the year after Fingal comes out um, and, and na nailing his colours possibly wrongly but certainly <laughs> nailing them to, uh, to a particular mask there. The next thing is that I think for better and for worse, and I'm very equivocal about this my, myself, it, it does instantiate a kind of historiography of the nation spirit, a sort of nation-based ba reading of literature, so national tradition, um, a narrative combined with a poetics that is... Um, that has the potential to become particularist and, and chauvinistic, and, you know, we might think that's one of the less... Um, welcome things, but, but um, Blair's uh, successor, William Greenfield, subsequently gave increasing importance to, um, to Scottish writing in his lectures um, and uh, increased interest in affect. Um, the fifth thing is that there's a debate which is going on throughout Blair's lectures, which I think we still um, find ourselves the inheritors of, or the victims of, if you like, which is this question of whether English should be regarded as a useful subject or an adornment. Um, at different points in the lectures, Blair will say, you know, every good citizen needs this. Uh, you have to have it in order to be taken seriously in the, the civic world, to, to go out into empire and make your mark and so on. Um, and he'll say, well, it's a terribly good relaxation after you've done your day's work, and it's, isn't it nice to sit down with a piece of poetry and, and just, you know wallow, um, he never uses that word, but, but there is this, this tension I think which um, you know, we, we continue to live with consequences of. Um, and the bit the last one, and I've left this to last because I think for literary critical purposes and in terms of where we might go with it in discussion, it's perhaps the most interesting, is that it's an anti-materialist training of the mind um, and this seems to be something that we can we can be re-encountering now um, in the light of the various 
cognitive um, cognitivist philosophies that are, are gaining ground in, in various respects and, and a, a new materialism, if you like, in, in thinking about uh, knowledge and, and how we know things. An 18th century faculty psychology is very interested in affect, in imagination, in what it calls sensibility and the passions uh, or the emotions, if you like, and how taste as judgment can develop and moderate uh, and analyse and think about these things. Um, rhetoric, eloquence, argument, close reading, these are all things, ways to develop discrimination. Um, and Blair is very interested in tropes, tropic thinking, uh, how metaphor and analogy is transformative. It helps us to understand it is meaning-making, it's not simply adornment. It's the medium by which qualities of mind and character can be manifest to others. So I think, I think there are sort of serious, critical, uh, epistemological, rhetorical indeed issues right there in Blair that we still um, find right there. Thank you. Serious rhetorical, critical, epistemological issues, matters of hermeneutics and interpretation. This chair was called the Chair of Rhetoric and Belles and I'm wondering if, as well as in the social circumstances and intellectual demands, there was something in the rhetoric of the period's literature itself or the bellness of its lech that rang some new need for the contemporary sphere, as well as the ones we've heard. I was going to ask you, Bob, more about that question of rhetoric in 18th century poetry and writing generally, but first of all, the name Greenfield was just mentioned, one individual who knew both first professors in interesting ways and managed to offend one in relation to the other in ways I can tell you about if you want to know, <laughs> was Robert Burns. And I was going to start off just with a straightforward question. Burns knew these guys, didn't he? Burns yeah. came to Edinburgh, he knew Hugh Blair, he knew William Greenfield. I just wondered if you wanted to reflect a bit on the age's greatest author knowing its greatest professor. Yes, I think this is a, this is a very interesting aspect um, of this story. This is all happening in the late 1780s. Uh, Burns publishes his first volume of poetry in, in Kilmarnock in 1786. And um, this volume opens a, a lot of doors for him. And um, before I talk a bit more about that, it, just need to point out, I suppose, that this is a, a very different kind of context from uh, the context of the founding of the chair here in 1762. Um, uh, far be it for me to um, find fault with Susan's magnificent Please handout. Do. However, <laughs> one of the things it doesn't mention um, is that 1762 is also at the tail end of uh, a war. Britain, Britain is at war in 1762 with France in the Seven Years' War. And by 1762, it's very obvious that Britain is going to win this war um, in a way that is going to establish it as the global power. Uh, it's going to win itself uh, Canada and uh, uh, bits of India and various other places. Um, and so 1762 is a, is a moment of great, I think I'm right, I think I'd be right in saying this, great kind of cultural confidence in Britain uh, after the intensely partisan and thanks in the, in the case of the Jacobite rebellions violent uh, strife of the first half of the century sort of coming out of all that um, in this uh, unexpectedly kind of power some ways unexpectedly kind of uh, dominant position in the, in the world 
Burns grows up in a very different context in the aftermath of another war mostly fought in North America, which is the American Revolutionary War, which, which we lost, uh, you might be distressed to know. I say we, some of you won. But <laughs> those, of us, those of us up here lost. Um, which really gives, that, gives, the, gives the British state a knock. Um, and uh, it se- Burns is growing up in a time which seems to be pregnant with various kinds of political and social possibilities, um, which would uh, culminate in the 1790s after the French Revolution uh, and um, uh, be squashed by the state uh, at that point. So it's a very different kind of, different kind of context. Um, just to give you a, a taste of that, and perhaps a taste of the possibilities, the, the handout that I hope most of you can, can see has a poem by Burns commemorating a dinner at Catrin, which is the house very close to Burns's farm in Ayrshire, of uh, Dougald Stewart. And Dougald Stewart is the professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh University, but he had his country house in Ayrshire. And Dougald Stewart got hold of the Kilmarnock poems, uh, which were published th- that summer, 1786, uh, and invited Burns to dinner. And also at dinner was um, uh, William Basil Douglas, Lord Dare, styled Lord Dare, uh, who was the uh, eldest son of the Earl of Selkirk and a very interesting chap in his own right. Uh, Stuart, I should explain, had been um, Douglas's tutor. Um, and uh, uh, this is what you do when you have a, a good student. You invite them round for dinner. I was hoping that would go in a different direction, actually. I just realised. Yeah, <laughs> OK. So we're supposed to give you dinner. Mm. Um, anyway, this is, this is Burns', this is Burns uh, description of his entry into to Catherine House in the presence of these people. Uh, start with the start with the fourth uh, stanza. But oh, for Hogarth's magic power to show Sir Bardi's Williard glower and how he stared and stammered when Govins he'd been led with Branks and stumping on his plume and shanks, he in the parlour hammered to meet good Stuart. Little pain is, or Scotia's sacred Demosthenes thinks I they are but men. But Burns, my lord, good God. I doited, my knees are in another noited, as faltering I gave Ben. I sidled, sh- I sidling sheltered in a nuke, and at his lordship's stall look, like some portentous omen. Except good sense and social glee, and what surprised me, modesty, I marked not uncommon. I watched the symptoms of the great, the gentle pride, the lordly state, the arrogant assuming, the faint a pride and a pride had he, nor sauce, nor state that I could see, mere than an honest plumen. Then from his lordship I shall learn, henceforth to meet with unconcern, one rank as well as another. Nay, honest worthy man need care to meet with noble youth dare, for he but meets a brother. Now, um, one of the things I love about that poem, it modulates from uh, a sort of, um, he starts off with kind of pride at his own upward mobility. You know, look at me. <laughs> you know, a, a tenant farmer being ushered into the presence of these great people to this kind of comic description of his own uh, uh, gauche, uh, awkward, self-conscious entry into very interesting the way that he, you know, what he's doing is imagining how must he, he must look to them, <laughs> as much as describing what they look like to him, and then concluding with this uh, democratic egalitarian conclusion that you don't have to be intimidated by um, uh, by these these people. Um, what's the connection with Hugh Blair? 
to meet good Stuart Little Painas or Scotia's sacred Demosthenes. Demosthenes. Um, it has been suggested that that is Hugh Blair, that Blair was at Catron uh, at that dinner. Um, this has to remain, and we, we can't sort of prove this, that one reason I, I tend to think that probably is Blair, um, after Burns meets Blair again in Edinburgh, Burns that winter comes to Edinburgh to try and arrange a second edition of his poems and consults with um, Blair on that. Uh, he writes in his second commonplace book, in his notebook, uh, that Blair is an example of what can be achieved by industry devoid of talent. Right? You just put in <laughs> enough work, then uh, you will get on in academia, and that's, that's true. <laughs> good insights there on Burns's part. But Demosthenes, of course, an example of that as well, because Demosthenes is the Greek orator who, to begin with, is a stutterer and overcomes that, becomes a great orator by putting pebbles in his mouth, practising, shouting at the sea, uh, all that stuff. Um, uh, whether that's already informing that, I don't know, but it, it, it would be uh, interesting if it was. I think that probably is, probably is Blair. Um, as I say, Burns comes to Edinburgh in the winter of uh, 1786 to 7 um, and arranges for the second edition of his poems, the Edinburgh edition, expanded edition with more poems in it, consults with lots of people, including with um, Blair. I think there's various things to, to say about that. Um, the first is that although Burns is coming from a completely different social class, well, when you describe um, Blair himself as fairly humble social origins, but by this point, of course, Blair's absolutely embedded in the, the Edinburgh establishment. Uh, Blair is a struggling tenant farmer for whom publishing his poems in Edinburgh is a big economic break. It'll make him a lot of money, apart from anything else. So, it, And it's easy to exaggerate the extent to which they're coming from different sides of the tracks, as it were. In actual fact, um, to be a poet in late 18th century Ayrshire uh, was almost by definition to put yourself in opposition to the dominant popular party in the Church of Scotland, uh, which is very down on creative art in general, and to align yourself with the moderate party in the Church of Scotland, which is both the modernising, enlightened, um, uh, reasonable, uh, non-fundamentalist part of the church, but also the part of church aligned with the upper classes. Um, and Burns is on that side of the, the equation. So when he's, when he's meeting with Blair, among other things, he's meeting with the leader, one of the leaders of his party in the Church of Scotland, as it were. Second thing is that... Um, Blair gives various uh, advice about what poems to put in the Edinburgh edition, what poems to keep out and all the rest of it, and Burns ignores almost all of it. Okay? Um, this is I, I, Burns meeting with Blair, I suppose we could pitch as the first uh, creative writing workshop to be held in a university anywhere in the world. I think we should, we should play that up. We should put that, in the, put that in the banners as well. Um, but it's, but it's what, as, as I suspect in most creative writing workshops, the creative writer goes away and does what they want to do anyway and just completely ignores the advice that they're being given by their, by their, their tutor. Um, and the, I suppose another thing to say about this is the fact that uh, in this description of the dinner at Catron, the really important character isn't Dare and it isn't Blair, but it's Dougald Stewart. And I'm afraid 
it could be argued that the most important Edinburgh University professor in Burns's career isn't Blair at all. It's Stuart, because it's Stuart who um, uh, makes connections for Burns that pave the way for his triumphant uh, entry into Edinburgh uh, that winter, uh, rather than rather than Blair. Well, of course, I mean, Blair by this point is a very old man. I suppose mm -hmm. he's pushing seventy mm -hmm. um, by this point. So, uh, yeah. The, what was the question? Uh, <laughs> what did Burns reckon to Blair? Was a question I remember asking. Yes. I don't suppose it actually was <laughs> the one I did ask. But the other one I was interested in, if you could press on a bit, Bob. I'm very happy to come back to talk more about Blair and Burns mm. and indeed Greenfield. I think that's yeah. actually really interesting. But maybe before we do that, what about the wider situation of rhetoric and poetry and rhetoric and writing at this time? Yeah. What was a professor empowered to look at in contemporary writing? Well, this situation? I mean, I'm tempted to answer that question by asking Susan, <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, in the in the in the wider context, I mean, the, this. One of the ways of thinking about what's happening in the 18th century in general, <laughs> I'm going to come such a crop kind of year, haven't I? Yes, when absolutely. When your students this, is, this, yeah. this <laughs> is the sort of thing you should not write in your, in your <laughs> dissertations, right? In the 18th century in general, um, is a kind of shift in uh, how rhetoric is understood away from, and this is what I want to know how, what rhetoric, in that title, Rhetoric and Bell Rhetoric, exactly what work the term rhetoric is doing, away from the sense of rhetoric as the skill required by a statesman or a lawyer or a preacher in order to uh, lift and redefine an audience whether that's a, a congregation or a courtroom or a um, Senate, a Parliament, um, in a way that sort of inspires them to virtue in some ways. A classical idea of what rhetoric is, what rhetoric means for Cicero or Pericles, right? The, the rhetorician as the one who conjures uh, a certain kind of consensus into being through the sheer power of their language and delivery. That version of rhetoric um, as constituting the community in a particular kind of way. And the way that, that gets replaced in some ways in that kind of socially constitutive role by ideas of literature and the literary and literary tradition so that we become a nation not because we've been uh, united politically uh, by an overtly political rhetoric but because we're all reading the same books. We're all reading Shakespeare and Milton. Uh, we are the inheritors of a particular body of literary works which provide our sort of common set of reference points. And that's what makes us British or Scottish, uh, is that literary inheritance, rather than um, uh, anything political. I mean, that's, that's operating kind of pre-political um, level now it seems to be the, the title of the well Susan I mean, I mean d does that inform but this is this is the question I, this is what I'm, I want to know about what Hugh Blair is doing with the chair rhetoric and bell rhetoric bell lecture I don't understand the bell lecture part uh, this 18th century discourse of taste and uh, certain sort of uh, aesthetic cultivation um, that's going on there when I mean, Blair's a preacher 
when he's teaching these young men rhetoric is one of the things he's doing giving them transferable skills <laughs> which they, I mean the, 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 young, the young gentlemen who are in his classes are presumably going to go on to be politicians and lawyers and, and uh, churchmen um, is he teaching them anything that's going to be of any use is he teaching them to speak yes Yes, yeah, right. I think okay. it's, but he's, I, I suppose the the other word that we need in there is eloquence. Right. Yes. Yes. So it's it's the, the connecting point, if you like, between the um, the political uh, rhetoric that gathers a nation together in mm. its in its common purpose, the, the, the classical one, and the uh, we're gathered by our, our mm. literary inheritance is is how we are members of a society, mm. and so eloquence and. The, its expression in sociability yeah. are, are the I mean th th this is why I think the the relationship between the civic context and the academic context when we're actually trying to think about the the science of man in Scotland and, mm. and what the Scottish Enlightenment is all about is absolutely crucial because mm. it's about insofar as this is a useful skill you're teaching people to be active and successful members of a, a, a cohesive okay. social group. So yeah. it's not it's not just about nationhood or or destiny. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, in one sense, relatively modest. I mean, it's being yeah. it's being a member of of you know Adam Smith's um, society of commerce. Mm. So rhetoric, in the eloquent sense, is also about um, exchange, commerce, being able to. Um, have the counters of conversation in a successful way mm. that that keep uh, not simply keep discussion going, but keep through sociability, yeah. society oiled and working yeah. and moving yeah. and and commercial exchange happening. I mean, there's no point in um, being you know, a fantastic banker if you lose the uh, goodwill of your constituent people. Mm, that's um, so you true. You could get stripped <laughs> of your yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Your, your well some parts of your millions if not your, your well-being um, but that, that sense that, that we're all sort of in this together I mean it, yeah. is, it is you know the, and I suppose another element of, of Blair's lectures is they're terribly middle class in a yeah. sense there it is this this a, a very Scottish and particular version of what Samuel Johnson calls that that um, that that common reader the the person who's above grossness and below refinement mm. it's it's a kind of uh, it's a democratizing in a non-political sense medium. We can all yeah. aspire to this. We can all be members of this exchange yeah. society. Right? Yeah. And in that sense, I think Blair and Burns are, you know, actually, yes. in as you were saying. I mean, they're both moderates in yeah. in, in in that uh, not specifically doctrinaire sense. Yes. No, I think that's, that's really interesting because I think that's that, so. That's a very different notion of eloquence, where what you're being taught is eloquence as a way of uh, conversing with your equals hmm. rather than the classical notion of eloquence where what you're doing is imposing yes. your meanings or on another group of people. Yes, that, yes. That, that, that's right. Because I think that's, um, in some ways, that's exactly what Burns is talking about in this poem, I think, hmm. is precisely that. Yes, that's yeah. right, that, that, that you're, um, uh, that this notion of uh, social exchange puts the ploughman and the, the Earl's son on a, on a level. As soon, as soon as you enter into that social space, as soon as you enter into the dining room at Catron, you, you're, you suddenly it's, it's incumbent on all of you to sort of contribute socially mm -hmm. to that occasion, um, rather than it being a, you know, the, the audience of the, 
uh, of the poor man with the great man or something like something like that and also I want to say I think that informs uh, very much informs Burns's practice of uh, verse which is very often uh, you know the verse epistle is one of his favorite genres so he's always writing to the poem is written to appear to, 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 to someone on his own sort of level someone he's addressing on his own um, sort of level and that that is what this this poem I should explain isn't published until after Burns's death and it's published along with it's published in is it and this is something that interests me okay my name is you um, it that isn't published in a in a book of poems it's published as a little chat book which is a tiny little 16 page um, thing with no just a paper paper cover which you can buy for tuppence right uh, and a lot of Burns's more uh, popular, uh, more sort of uh, subversive uh, verses. First find publication in 1799 in these in these little books. Um, it published along with that letter that I put on the the handout uh, as well. Where again the poem is the poem is being presented as part of an epistolary correspondence. You know something that's written about one sort of friendship and then sent to another friend, Dr. Mackenzie of uh, Mochlin, surgeon in Mochlin. Um as part of it, and then put into circulation in this form, which makes it accessible to a very wide public. If you're, if you're able to buy anything at all uh, in terms of printed material uh, in 1799 Glasgow, then you can buy this little little tuppence pamphlet. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. Talking about dining rooms, you are, and the way rhetoric is used, I just want to I was very struck by what you were saying, Bob, that we should add to our celebrations the fact we had the first creative writing seminars in the history of the subject. And in fact, of course, we do want to do that, but in the exhibition, which we will open in the main library in August, there will be a lot about Edinburgh writers and their relationship with the university, as well as Edinburgh critics and their relation with writers. But I'm still pressing back in Burns and his relationship with those first critics, Greenfield and Blair. Burns was once apparently asked what he liked best about Edinburgh when he came in 1786, and he replied very interestingly that the thing he most enjoyed were the sermons delivered by the assistant minister of St Giles, and presumably that sense you went and enjoyed a sermon it wasn't altogether to do with piety, it was to do with some kind of literary appreciation. It was unfortunate that Burns made that remark while having dinner with Hugh Blair, because Hugh Blair was the chief minister in St. Giles, and William Greenfield was his assistant. Hugh Blair was the first professor of rhetoric in Bellet, Greenfield was the second. I'm interested in a space that opened up between these guys, particularly given what you said about Blair forever his roots being very middle class and rather restrained, and therefore not entirely Burnsian, because Burns, it seems to me, favoured Greenfield over Blair, not only as a minister, but in other ways as well. And as an example of what we might think of as industry devoid of talent, having no talent for this period, I actually exercised a certain amount of industry, looked up one of Burns's letters, and I found it so interesting that I put it on a bit of paper, and you can tell I got excited because I marked the bit in the margin, which I want to read out. This is Burns writing to Greenfield and saying, he's sending two songs by Ayrshire Mechanics, and he's sending them particularly to Greenfield. Why? Because having got these out of the recesses of his memory, he's sending them, enclosing them, sick to you as a kind of curiosity.
depositing as a professor of the belle lettre de la nature, which allow me to say I look upon as an additional merit of yours, a kind of by-professorship, not always to be found among the systematic fathers and brothers of scientific criticism. Well, this is amazing that criticism is only a few years old, and already there are schisms in it, <laughs> and there are schisms between the scientific, the methodical, the reductive, the middle class, maybe, and Greenfield, whom we might think of as, as the romantic, the exciting, the nature in all this. I also found the letter above, which talks about the catastrophe of Greenfield, which is so unmentionable, I'm not going to tell you what it was, but I'm interested <laughs> in the... Um, relationship, and it's quite hard to tell you what it was, I'm just interested in that relationship between these two guys, and I wondered if you wanted to comment on it as a way from enlightenment to romance, or from system to emotion, or from one kind of criticism to another, or should I just acknowledge I've got no talent at all and shut up? <laughs> <laughs> well, Susan's the one who knows about Greenfield. It's very few people know anything about Greenfield. Yeah. He was written out of the record. He, he, he Greenfield... I mean, the, the reason I'm, I would be a bit nervous of, of that, that, that wonderful baton-handing uh, uh, or, or uh, sort of schism uh, thing is that, I mean, Greenfield is really Blair's disciple. He starts as Blair's disciple, and he, in 1784, which is a year after Blair published his lectures that he'd been given, given since the early 1760s, um, Greenfield actually uh, officially takes uh, shares the chair with him, um, and Greenfield gives all the lectures, and Blair gets the stipend. And seems a fair deal. You know, <laughs> what do we employ research assistants for? You know, so. um, and, and but actually, I mean, what happens is that that, that Greenfield gets gets income by by getting the the take up of the lectures. It's clear that um, by this stage. Blair is, you know, not only a cultural authority, um, and, and he has the status. He's something of an institution in, in a sense in his own right. And so Greenfield, in order to make any kind of mark and get the students to come and listen to him rather than Blair giving the lectures, um, has to write some damn good lectures, really. And and he he does two things I think that are different from Blair. One is the, what I mentioned before the. A, an emphasis on Scottish writing and in a sense you could say Blair had already handed him that as a possibility by incorporating this dissertation on Ossian in the lectures um, the, the later versions um, so he he perhaps could be the, the initiator of Scottish literature as, a, as an academic subject if we were looking for one um, and the other thing Greenfield does and this is maybe a bit closer to the the Burns comparison is that his his lectures have more um, concentration on affect, on the kind of response that literature arises in the emotions. Now, B Blair had dealt with that quite fully, but but um, very much as as uh, the other side of thinking about eloquence and, and judgment, Greenfield actually asks about what we feel and and why we feel it when wh why an emotion gets raised in the breast by um, by a particular kind of writing um, and so actually I mean Greenfield is, is is clearly an affective sentimental preacher as well as uh, lecturer and that's where I mean I think there probably is a um, uh, an affinity in some ways with with Burns and Burns is I mean you know Burns 
paraded himself as a man of feeling. He talked about walking around with a copy of uh, Mackenzie's Man of Feeling, always in his back pocket, yeah. and you know, wore out three three uh, different copies of it through sitting on them all the time. <laughs> but, yeah. um, so th there's that, and and then there's obviously from an early stage a kind of frisson about Greenfield that you know, whatever Blair, uh, Burns knew or didn't know, and I suspect it's nothing at all because I don't think Burns would have been much in sympathetic um, accord with, uh, with uh, Greenfield's sexual proclivities. I mean, it, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't a libertine in that sense. Um, as far as we know. As far as we know. <laughs> well, well, yes, that's no, always no, a possibility. Right. <laughs> I don't think we were. Anyway, from 1798, um, Greenfield just more or less disappears from the record. Actually, what he did was go to London and assumed the name of Rutherford, uh, under which name he died, sort of in obscurity. Although he did actually publish um, something which we believe to be drawn from his lectures as as Rutherford in uh, in um, London later, I think. Um, so he so actually after 1798, Blair, as a really very elderly man, has to take back his lectures in, mm. um, for the couple of years until he dies in, in 1800. Um, so there's a sort of lacuna around the second professor of, of, uh, of uh, rhetoric. Yeah, listen, I mean, I'm going to stop babbling about Greenfield. There's a lot more to be said. Walter Scott liked Greenfield just as much as Burns did. But for the moment, uh, I'm going to stop, in fact, asking ignorant questions altogether, I think, because I'd prefer someone else to take over and need to ask informed questions. There's lots of people out there. We know a lot about this field already, and there's loads of you here and interested in it. There are more questions that I could ask. Somebody should certainly ask Bob to look at the second page of his handout. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Possibly me. Um, what would you like to know more? Ask a question. Of either of the speakers. Um, question really about the year zero, you know, the founding about the latter aspect of it. I mean, I think the good times are rolling in Edinburgh for a lot of people. I mean, William Robertson, the, uh, the principal of the university, is, a, is another figure who benefits a lot by the, uh, the conjunction of George III and Butte and, and a lot of patronage coming north. I mean, what, what there is in 1762-3 is a huge outpouring of anti-Scots feeling in London, um, really directed through this... The, um, uh, this, the, the figure of Butte and um, you get uh, John Wilkes's North Britain which um, is a, a fairly short lived periodical but, but uh, you know, it really sends up the Scots and their pretensions and their, um, uh, their non-gainful preferments and, and so on um, so, th so there's, a, there's, a, there's a real sort of tension between what's going on in Scotland um, and, and the general glee that, that Butte is there for us, if, if you like, and, um, and the anti-Scots feeling in London. And, and Scots in London feel this and, and respond to it very, very clearly. In terms of the, the kind of intra-institutional thing, I think one of the most interesting things is that rhetoric and belles lettres as a, as a sort of broad area of instruction um, 
is in the middle of a kind of institutional tug of war. It had been at, uh, associated with various different chairs. I mean, I talked about John Stevenson and the chair of logic and metaphysic. I mean, it's at different points, different aspects of it have prior to 1762 been taught within different institutional, um, institutionalized professorships. And that itself is part of a real jockeying for status and authority within the university of different subjects, and it's part of the disciplinary ferment. And, and, and I think one of the things that does happen with the establishment of the chair in 1762 is that English literature, as it were, is, is here to stay. It's on the institutional map, and these subjects which have before that been pickable up by different uh, professors just to make their case in philosophy or in, in some cases in, in law or other um, what we would regard as other disciplinary areas, they now have to cede that territory to English literature to an extent. Do we know um, <coughs> who attended these classes? And what the term middle class has been hmm. used by both of you several times. Do we actually know the composition of the, um, the group that goes? Because I don't fully remember the structure of the hmm. university in those days. There weren't very many classes, and the student would have to attend what seven, mm -hmm. eight, or nine over three-year period. Yes, and, and there's no, there are no set curricula apart from mm -hmm. choosing a professor to go and sit and repeat on. It's not until quite a bit later um, in the 19th century that English literature actually becomes a compulsory part of the well, undergraduate curriculum, which it, it which it did, but but not till quite a bit Do later. Well, they we do have some. Yeah. Well, we do have some figures, and and I mean, there's there's a certain disparity between and and Bill Zacks knows more about this than, than me. I know that that the um, some records that we have of the numbers of students attending class suggest that in a particular year, um, Blair is only getting 35 students, whereas the most popular subject, and I've forgotten momentarily what that is, is is over 100 students registered. However. There are other reports that say the lectures were terribly popular. They were clearly popular when they were in the city beforehand, and the university's desire to take them into the university it, itself and, and the curriculum is part of a, a recognition of that, because fees are paid, as you would know, by, by students in order to attend a class. So, and, and students pay the fee and get a class ticket. So to an extent, though not completely, we are able to reconstruct um, sometimes by lists of names, sometimes just by numbers, who got tickets for it. We do, I think, know, and again, Bill could correct me on this, that, that um, after the Blair started giving his lectures within the university, they, uh, they were still attended by um, people from, uh, with, not, not students, I mean, they were, they were public lectures too, they remained public lectures to that extent. Um, I think the middle class thing is, a, I mean, in a way it's, a, it, it's an anachronism, and in a way it's a bit of a, a misnomer. I think probably what, well, you tell me if you mean this, but <laughs> what I mean by it, I think, is, is that it, in a sense that this is part of a process that we see happening in Addison and, and Steele and The Spectator, that something that we would now think of as the middle class is being coagulated by a certain kind of discourse. And so to a certain extent, it seems to me that Blair is responsible in part through his lectures for um, providing a voice for a, a, a class to think of themselves as as middle, if you like. I mean, you know, it's not an aristocratic rhetoric, neither is it, you know, a simple plowman rhetoric, and Bill Burns knows that perfectly well too. Yes, I mean. that's right. I mean, Burns is a very interesting case in point in this regard, because he does 
you know, he does have a certain commitment to um, uh, values like respectability and so on that puts him in the lower ranks of the kind of middling sort uh, in all sorts of um, in all sorts of ways, um, and is very conscious of the distance between him and the simple labouring poor of the countryside. I mean, it's not he gets he gets called a you know Mackenzie the, the review of um, the Kilmarnock edition on the back of the handout is from uh, Henry Mackenzie's review of the Kilmarnock edition in the lounger and. Um, uh, Mackenzie calls Burns a ploughman, and there's various other contexts where Burns refers to himself as a, a well, not ploughman, he refers to himself as a ploughman, which makes him makes it sound as if he was a, a wage labourer. But Burns was never a wage labourer. I mean, he was a he was a, a tenant farmer, um, and never actually had to work for a, a daily wage. Um, so I think Bur yes, Bur Burns. I think the interesting thing that's happening in the 1790s is, is precisely that kind of Addisonian. Uh, the, the values of gentility and, and uh, politeness that are established by Addison and Steele at the start of the century in order to consolidate the newly wealthy with the old money, the gentry with uh, the, the merchant cl and commercial classes. Th that is starting, starting to be pulled down the way, as it were. There are people from Burns's kind of class who are now making a claim, now claiming to be entering that kind of um, uh, that kind of discourse, that kind of social group, and claiming equality, uh, claiming that kind of claiming that kind of cultural uh, world for their for their own on the basis of their reading, really. Mm. Just a, as a footnote, that we know in the 1770s, Blair's classes were sometimes as small as 20, but the the cost of joining them was not very high. That you could get into these classes for fairly minimal fees. Somebody who came to Edinburgh and wrote a number of letters in the 1770s, I can't remember their name, James Mike, that he wrote back to London saying that Scottish students are not particularly distinguished either by politeness or by cleanliness. So that may have been part of the London against Scotland side, but it suggests that the people who went to these lectures were not necessarily very affluent, not necessarily there were very many of them, really. Bill? Uh, a question and a comment. Um, I'll ask the question first and then make the comment. Well, why are we not in the Hugh Blair Tower rather than the <laughs> <laughs> Tower? This is just, I guess, goes back to your Big Bang question. And then uh, just a, a point that was mentioned but really can't be overemphasized, and it's that Hugh Blair is, I, is arguably the J.K. Rowling of 18th century Scotland. No living author sells more copies of the books they wrote than Blair. And surprisingly, these books are initially sermons, five volumes over a 25-year period. Everyone reads them. And his publisher's archive record showed that that was his best-selling, most lucrative title of a living author. Uh, and then when Blair retires, these the lectures he works up and published, which are passed around in manuscript among the students and sold like secondhand textbooks. He's uh, worried that someone is going to publish an edition before he gets around to it, so he goes into print. And although the sales start off rather slowly, uh, there's an abridgment done a year later, in 1784, and this text becomes far and away 
the most popular text for the teaching of what we would call English literature in the English-speaking world. Uh, in America alone, there are hundred editions of that layered lecture abridged in, in the 19th century. <laughs> Everywhere in the English-speaking world, people learn their subjects, our subjects, from Blair. Yeah, thanks. I, th I think that's a very important point that, that, I mean, Blair is not simply very influential in in Scotland and in, in Great Britain, but, I mean, it is through Blair that English literature becomes a subject globally to to, to the extent that, that we see that happening as a, uh, as, as a result. And I, I believe um, uh, Blair's lectures weren't out of print at all until the 20th century in America. I mean, they were... They were in print continually because all the American colleges uh, taught this subject through Blair's lectures as their textbooks. So, you know, he gets around in uh, in textual form for sure. Hard as it is to believe if you read them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm increasingly, uh, I must say, I'm one I'm over, over to an extent. But yeah, uh, maybe it's just because I had to reread them. But um, just as, as you know, of course, uh, why is, why are we not in the Hugh Blair Tower? Well, it might have been in better taste had we been, but. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, of course, uh, the university never gave David Hume a chair. Um, perhaps they felt they'd done enough for Hugh Blair, and uh, you know, uh, so they gave Hume a tower instead of a chair. Um, and uh, not till an awful lot later, when he when he had been safely uh, sort of domesticated, I think. And we are moving into a new building in a couple of years' time, so there, there's still a chance that yeah. that could become the, the Hugh Blair building. Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Towards the end of questions, but one more from there and then one from there. Was there one there? I, I, I certainly don't think that um, <coughs> Burns was in any way a beneficiary of the establishment of things like the Chair of Rhetoric and Belle Lettre. I mean, the, the, the literary culture of Edinburgh did lots for him, but it, it, it's not as if he became incorporated in a, a canon no. in that kind of way, because there was nothing, nothing that the aspiring gentleman could learn from reading Burns that he wouldn't be better reading Addison or Swift or any of the other people that. Blair is talking about. Um, so I don't think that really uh, happens. But Burns is trying to sort of buy, buy his way into um, a certain sort of cultural authority by knowing that stuff himself. But that stuff that he's been taught in other contexts, obviously Burns didn't come to university. So, uh, yeah, and I mean, it might be worth saying that it almost happens the other way around, that yeah. the, the, gen the gentry and, and the reading public uh, know how to read Burns because Blair has as well taught them mm. that this is going to be this is the way um, a, a natural genius would manifest itself, and so actually they misread various aspects of Burns because they they 
think about the stages of society and what a ploughman would represent in, in yeah. terms of the kind of language he, uh, he would use. I mean, just to say, is it happening everywhere? Well, to an extent, yes. I mean, one would have to say that um, these lectures were, or a precursor of these lectures were given by Adam Smith in Edinburgh, first of all, in the public uh, domain in uh, 1748-51, as I mentioned. They were then taken up when Adam Smith went to Glasgow and lectured um, not quite under that aegis, so, and there was no Regis chair in, in Glasgow until the 19th century, but they were then taken up in Edinburgh by Robert Watson, who subsequently was appointed to a post in St Andrews. Um, so you can see the teaching of rhetoric and ballet spreading out. It's the institutional recognition that happens in Edinburgh first in, in um, 1762, and, and that happens partly because of this crown and, and patronage uh, issue. The Scottishness thing is a very complex and vexed and, and one. Yes, part of being English literature was was uh, to be able to take part in a, uh, a discourse that was that, that transcended uh, local Scottish origins. And so, when writers like Hume wanted their books published, uh, uh, as they do did in London, to reach a serious historical audience or, or philosophical audience, they actually asked people to go through them and remove any signs of Scottishness because of the anti-Scots feeling, because if, if reviewers had been able to pin on something as a Scotticism, they would instantly have discounted the seriousness of the argument or the, uh, the, the historical analysis or anything else. So it was a defense of their intellectual position by not rendering their linguistic position the, the vulnerable, the Achilles heel, if you like. One final question. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the way that um, Blair's reputation has kind of aged. Uh, you mentioned that Blair's mm. works go out of print, um, at least in the States in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and uh, the extent to which his reputation, if it suffered at all with change in pedagogy in the 20th century, or um, if, I guess, kind of the sense of his methods have become somewhat antiquated, or that they're the precursor to what we're doing right mm. now, and it's still very much in vogue. That's a very good question, and it's a very complicated one, I think. Um, I, I mean, I, I would just... Bob, you should, you, you should chip in as well. But, uh, I mean, I would, I would see it under a, a few headings. One is that, of course, the history of English literature evolves from that point. Uh, and from the mid-19th century, there's... Uh, largely from Germany, there's an... Uh, um, a reintegration of things which in a sense have been exported from, from Britain. I mean, one is uh, the effect of Ossianic poetry um, into German thinking, national gathering, national thinking around Herder and, and then the sense of national uh, uh, traditions and, and, and a particularly nationalist strain of writing. And the other is philology, uh, Germanic philology and, and the way in which that gathers pace as a means of studying um, language and literature um, in 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 Germany in the 19th century, and then it is re-imported to um, to uh, Anglophone context uh, towards the end of the century. So the discipline of English literature is in is in ferment from the beginning. It's, you know, as, as you said, there's you know schism almost before you start, but also you know evolution and and, and change. And one of the things that, that, is, that happens is that there's a split, and you can see this, you Americans will know this very clearly, that, that um, there are rhetoric departments and then there are critical departments. And they, they take very different um, 
positions with respect to, to how you read literature and how you analyse literature. And those actually become institutionally quite opposed in the 20th century in, in America. And I think Blair's compromise position or complex position is not one that is felt to be sustainable after that. Um, Bell Letter itself, and this is largely, I, I, I think, as part of its sort of adoption into what we think of as a, uh, a, um, a sort of Oxford and Cambridge early 20th century model, falls into disrepute because it's, it's meant to be, I mean, as one critic said about um, uh, English literature when it first began to be taught south of the border, um, chatter about Shelley. You know, sort of that, that sense of the nice woolly thing that we can do when we all read a romantic poem and feel uplifted by it. And so I, I think, I think belle lettre as a term gets, gets very um, uh, debased. And indeed, from 1860, this chair is called the Chair of Rhetoric and English Literature. I mean, belle lettre has already begun to have the wrong kind of aestheticist connotations. It's um, also French. And it's also French, yeah. Well, I mean, well, the whole French part of it is, <laughs> yes, um, is, I mean, is, is part of the story that we yes. haven't really you know, had yes. time for. But, I mean, uh, the other answer, uh, you know, I guess, is, is romanticism. I mean, uh, you know. Yes, I suppose, I suppose what I was going to say, maybe connected with that, is, is that if you look at the way in which Eng I mean, Eng English literature, that there is a chair in English literature in London from the 1820s, University College London um, sets one up, and they actually call it a chair of English literature. So they do actually have a claim, folks, mm -hmm. to be in the first chair of English literature rather than ours. Anyway. Um, Can I just sort of add yeah. to that? that yeah. Actually, by 1950, yeah. by 1950, Edinburgh specifically was heavily Oxfordized. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not quite sure when that began, yeah. but it's, um, it's yeah. possible. Yes. <laughs> um, no, I was, I was going to say about thinking about the, the, the teaching of English literature in England, to a certain extent Scotland as well, I think, in the 19th century, is that it, become, it does become incredibly, you touched on this, it does become incredibly nationalistic. Mm -hmm. That what you are doing in um, reading Shakespeare and Milton and Spencer and so on is not acquiring a set of pragmatic skills for negotiating social situations, not a means of interpolating yourself into a particular kind of social scene. What you are getting in touch with is the soul yeah. of the English nation, <laughs> yeah. and 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 um, in a, in a way that's supposed to inform and explain why uh, England, stroke Britain, is now top dog in the world. I mean, it's real kind of uh, deterministic kind of national destiny kind of kind of stuff, um, which makes Hugh Blair look absolutely delightful in comparison. He does. One last one. Yes, 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 that's right. Yes, that's right. That's right. Right, and that's happy note. You know the old way you came from. What was on? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Just to remind you where you're going. You're going outside for a drink, like or not. And also, we're going on to about 2012 with a whole range of exciting events. Readings from Alan Warner to Douglas Dunn, quite soon from Andy Gregg and Paul Gregory. An exhibition in the summer, book festival events, and many more discussions.
researcher involved in 2012, Alexandra Laurie, all these things that it looks as though I industriously found out <laughs> were actually found out for me. The question of what research assistants are for are those, now you know, and I'm really grateful to her. But I'm also immediately grateful to a very interesting audience, and clearly we've a lot to add to this, and I hope we'll come back and add more. But particularly, I want you to join with me in thanking today's speakers, Bob Irvin and Susan Manning, for a great start to what they're learning. Thanks a lot. This production is copyright, the University of Edinburgh.